we're continuing our investigation of Eric Lemon and Ramp. Uh, we're going to retell his origin story again, but this time seven years later. You can see slight differences in how he tells his origin story. And there's a little connection here with China because he studied abroad in China and actually learned Chinese and appeared on a Chinese TV show. Very, very impressive, very bold. Um, but also, I think, is reflective of a certain era in the 90s when everyone was convinced that China would take over the world and therefore everyone needed to learn Chinese. 30 years later, that seems less like a thing. Um, and then it goes into the transition into ramp, which I find interesting, and I'll have a little commentary at the end. Uh, so you went to Harvard, <laughs> and yeah. you were you majored in Chinese there? Uh, econ in, in Mandarin was a secondary. In Mandarin, got it. And uh, what was that? I mean, I, that was a popular. Uh, I mean, it still is a very popular language, but a uh, popular field to study around them. But what, were, what was your thought process then? I mean, it just was so different than, than anything. Like, I, I, growing up, I never was great at languages. My Spanish is like fine. Really? Um, it, it's okay. Yeah. Um, but it just was one of these things where I was like, all right, I'm at Harvard. They take four people a year from Nevada. Like, maybe I should learn something I could never learn before. And uh, that's it wild. Because, yeah. I mean, like, there's no derivative really elements of like the English language that tie to Chinese. Like, Spanish is yeah. uh, much, much closer and yeah. easier to learn. And you're like, hey, I'm going to go dive in and do this. Why not? Yeah. yeah, basically, I mean, it, it, there were there was funny things too. I mean, so I, I showed up in 2008. The Olympics had just happened. Uh, the Vegas casinos, people I was close with, they were opening things out in Macau. Um, it just seemed everyone at the time was talking about this was like the next giant economy you had to know about. And I thought, okay, like I'm going to do it. I'm going to go go learn it. And um, it was fascinating for a lot of years. I actually thought I would spend my whole career out there. I ended up living in China for almost two years across, uh, I guess, 10, 12 trips. Um, after before, never, you know, I think I'd only gone to Canada once. Um, um, and so it just was uh, kind of a, a fun time to be out there. Um, obviously not there today, but um, it was, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Because I think even what Las Vegas was doing, you'd meet people who said they grew up in like a village out in China. You're like, wow, how many people live there? And they're like 3 million. Um, and so you'd find sort of just the scale of things was totally different. Um, I, I, I liked it. it was, I So, yeah. I've heard you say that, like, in doing this, well, one, yeah. I need the story about debating. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. So let's start there. The, the famous debate story. Uh, so there, there's a video on, on, online on YouTube where it's sort of a pastime, I think, in, in Asia where they basically put foreigners on TV and they have them, like, debate or go on game shows or something. And so they had arranged this debate between, like, Harvard University and universities in England all around the world. And so there's a debate of us, me debating love and marriage at the age of, uh, I think, 19 years old. So um, uh, haircut was worse, didn't know what I was talking about, but it was all in Mandarin, it was all on TV, and it was sort of a fun clip. Yeah, and whatever, tw uh, 12, 14 years later, uh, you still, it, like... I don't know. I mean, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah, yeah, you still, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your debate, uh, did you win? How did it actually go? I, uh, so in the round that's there, um, was incredible, won the two. I actually lost in, in the finals. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know, that yeah. wouldn't have impacted my investment decision, but yeah. I, uh, that's, that's, uh, and so I heard you say that, like, being over there, you're like, hey, I'm not that special comparatively to you know other people that have the skill sets i have I, I mean i think you're special uh but Thanks, in what Logan. way yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> in what way uh was uh did that inform like your career decision and ultimately to leave china well there was a set of things going on so one um first like there's 
quite literally, there's over a billion people in, in, in China and people were incredibly kind, incredibly welcoming. And, and it felt like, um, you know, wow, I'm, I'm meeting with the, you know, um, people running companies at different places. This seems like the place for me. But if you really dug in and just thought about it, there was a billion people there who spoke perfect native Mandarin. Um, it was unusual that, that I spoke Mandarin, but the reality was there was tens of millions um, of, of, of people in China who spoke fantastic, perfect English. Um, and so at some level, I'm looking at if, if my unique skill is that I can speak Mandarin and actually it's not that unique, like, is that really so unique? Am I actually so special? Um, and this was, um, well, other than maybe you and, and, and my mom and a few other people, yeah. like, it's just like, not yeah. really statistically. Yeah. And I think and, a lot of investors do, but yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep safe. I, I guess the, for me, the, the, the question was like, all right, I'm about to start my career. Could I actually pick up something um, that was different? And I, I guess at the time, um, they, my, my hometown, Vegas had gone through like a lot of uh, hard times, a financial crisis, all kinds of issues with, with housing. Um, and I, I felt that uh, in China, um, they were growing um, GDP through investment. It was growing like 20% a year, but the actual economy was growing like 6 8% per year. And that was disconnected. And the question was, okay, well, would there be a debt crisis somewhere in the future? And maybe by that time, um, I could speak manner, but I could have experience of that. Maybe I should go learn it. And so I, I ended up starting my career in financial restructuring. I had this like harebrained scheme of like, in a decade, I'll come back and it'll be ready. And it turned out, um, there, there is more distress, but I'm not there. <laughs> I yeah, definitely yeah. don't have the right skills for it, but it, it ended up pulling me back to the, to the States. Yeah. So you're doing corporate restructuring, which I assume is as sexy as it sounds. It's, well, it's now in vogue too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give us a few months and it's going to be really, really sexy. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. uh, so, so take me to that path to starting Paribus, your first company. Yeah. Um, so I'd been, gosh, so I was working in Midtown, um, I think it was like a good, it was an amazing day if one day per month you could like leave the office when it was still sunny. Yep. Um, so it just was working a lot of hours, but I stumbled into, I guess it was two things. One, I had like more than, um, uh, you know, a few dollars of disposable income. I, and I thought back to first, my first job was at an express. I told t-shirts and jeans uh, off the strip. Um, and I remember there was, it was this constant sales culture. Um, um, where, um, on Saturday it'd be 20% off on Tuesday, it'd be 40% off. You had you know, some people who'd come in on Tuesday say, I want the difference. Others who kind of, you made money because people didn't know. Um, I always thought that was weird. Um, but then later, um, once I had a, you know, a little bit, you know, uh, a little bit more to spend, it started happening. Um, you'd buy a TV and if you're Spartan, you know, apartment, um, and you, um, and you know, the price would change. And there was kind of one moment when, um, a group of us went on a trip, um, booked it the next day or wanted to join. We saw that the price was like hundred dollars or different. It was over a thousand dollars across all of it. And I just was sitting there, I was like, this is really, this is like really frustrating. And so I um, found that the airline would refund the difference if you asked. Um, I had taken a little bit of computer science in, in college and it was a slow day at work, thankfully. And I just sat there and I was like, gosh, like, um, I wish there was software that told me this. Like, there should be some way to track it. And then maybe you could just tell me, or maybe could it contact the store? Could it do this automatically and just get pulling at that thread? And I went over that night to, uh, my friend uh, Kareem's house. Kareem became the co-founder of Paribus and co-founder now of uh, Ramp as well. Um, and uh, you know, we just thought, you know, what if there was uh, software that would help you get that discount um, difference in price automatically? And so, a little bit wandering, but it came from just um, experiences. My first job to um, things that I just had enough time in the day to notice and do something about. And and so, how did it? How did it? work. I mean, yeah. you guys got to, were, were you on Good Morning America or you were on something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Today Show or one of those, right? So, so take yeah. me through, I mean, it's a wild, it was a very fast, uh, you went through the full startup cycle in like 
24 months or something, right? It was, it was slow to fast. Yeah. So first, like that, like that happened that moment when I went over to Kareem's, we were talking about it. It was probably back in 2013 um, that we were like, we're kind of onto it. And so for like the better part of a year, we just, um, we we're trying to figure out like, is this real? Um, and you quit your job to do this? After almost a year, okay. um, we did. And so 12 so we, months mucking around and then. Yeah, basically. And, and we were lucky. I think Amazon went from changing like a few hundred thousand prices per day to tens of millions per day over that time period. And so we, some of it was luck, but we'd figured out, okay, you could build like a small email app that's where receipts lived. You could figure out. And so the premise of Paribus was, it was a Gmail, um, Yahoo, whatever app where you link your email, we track the receipts, the prices of which you bought. And if you were eligible um, for a discount, uh, we'd actually, the uh, software would write a note to the retailer, the retailer would refund you the difference and we charged a cut. And so um, we basically tinkered for a year until it was real. Like prices were changing all the time. Um, you could make it that easy. You could just write it with software and do it with no human intervention. Um, um, and uh, the market was large. And so after a year, we left our jobs. We worked on the side and then we launched the product in May of 2015. Um, it just took off. Within a year, we had almost a million customers. We were on Good Morning America, the Today Show, um, CNN, all kinds of different outlets, some multiple times. Um, and, uh, we, a complicated history, we got it, but we got a pretty life-changing offer from Capital One. Um, you know, essentially, I think it was like a year after launching publicly. And how many people were on the team at this point? 15, maybe. Yeah. Um, and I think we, we sold. Raised a couple million bucks. Two million. You yeah. know, and, and went through YC, right? Yeah. Yeah. Went through YC, things took off and, um, yeah, um, it was, it was a tough decision because we were basically evaluating, do we, we close like a large series, a round of funding from a firm we really, you know, at the time excited about, could grow and scale this thing all the way through, or do we sell? And at, at first we were like, no, we can't do that. We're going to go and and take this all the way. But at some point, um, uh, first, I mean, some of our um, merchants liked us, others hated us. Um, there I, was can imagine, risk. I can imagine yeah, if it, you're sending thousands of emails a day to amazon.com, you're probably not like getting uh, on Jeff Bezos's Christmas card or yeah, holiday card. It was list. growing like 40% a month. And so it was getting like exponentially nutty. Meanwhile, like Kareem was on a, a, a visa. It was a life-changing amount. Of, I'd never seen anything close to, to like it or the effect personally. And so we decided to, to go for it. And we, so we, we, we sold the company in October 2016 and it was very fast. I mean, we ended up spending the next almost three years there. So from, from le quitting your job, uh, doing restructuring yeah. to sale, yeah. that was how long? Uh, two years, just under. Okay, got yeah. it. And you stayed at Capital One for how long? Uh, actually longer than uh, Paris was independent for. So we left in February of 2019. Wow. Interesting. And so then you you left February 2019 and take me to Ramp. Yeah. So there, th that in-between period was, was where it all came together. I mean, so our job at Capital One was save people money. And so we Spent a lot of times turning data into savings. It sort of was the predecessor to a lot of the activity now, which is bundling their capital and shopping. But could we build software to help people um, um, either spend less upfront after the purchase? And we felt like we were just scratching the surface of what we could do. And, and was this all yeah. through, like, was Paribus actually integrated within Capital Ones or did they sort of take the lessons you learned and throw it out and be like, hey, go work on this stuff? That was the so. We were really lucky. They'd gone through enough acquisitions that were like a bit funky, put things in like cost centers versus parts of the, the, the group of the P&L that they actually put us in the credit card division mm -hmm. and they gave us a full year before really any integration um, in a deep way to say, go scale this, get your bearings, spend time with it and think about how these things can come together and, and going down back and forth to McLean once a month to figure out how this would come. But 
a lot of it was actually this weird email savings group operating with the support of a large large PL. The second year was bringing it together, and then um, at the beginning of the third, we we acquired um, uh, it's going to be called called Wikibuy, which became the backbone of Capital One Shopping. A year later, PayPal bought Honey. There's a whole suite of services around helping people uh, save before, during, and after they shop. But you know, a lot of it was around savings. Um, and then we were right in the heart of the card business. And the thing that was wild was one, we got to see like, why is Capital One so profitable? What makes the credit card business great? Um, and it is an amazing business. And um, people were thinking about things that you would expect, like how do you grow purchase volume? How do you grow revenue? How do you reduce net interest, like or increase net interest margin, reduce the cost of rewards? And in, in my job, I would just call up customers and I asked them to do on points, cash back, something different. And it was really misaligned. A lot of customers were actually looking for more in their bank account, uh, not more points. Um, and um, what was make um, many customers, if you could actually just help them spend less, it would help them first get more of what they were looking for. And could you actually stop competing on, on price, um, stop competing on the cost of rewards and send compete on value. And so we just got obsessed with this idea of what if there was a card and software that could help people spend less. And so I, I guess what led to, to ramp was just too many months of just kind of thinking and obsessing over it combined with things that were happening um, in the market that made it possible to actually start a new credit card company in a way that just wasn't possible for 30 years. And so we, um, yeah, after uh, we ended up spending six months transitioning the team, making sure it's a good spot, um, uh, February 2019 left and in March, um, so about three years and almost three months ago incorporated uh, the company. And it's just... Um, you know, learned a lot of things along the way. Um, we thought the be-all, end-all was saving people money. It turned out saving companies' time uh, was much more important than we appreciated too. But um, we, we still think we're the first and only that uh, credit card company that actually measures ourselves by how much money have we put back into our customer bank account that actually measures how much time have we saved, um, which is very different than uh, most people are thinking about what cool lounges can they open up? How can they get you to spend more on the points programs and devalue them in the background? And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's helped us grow quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you, who knows? Maybe you'll get a cafe one day. But yeah. uh, <laughs> so yeah. uh, so maybe you touched on this earlier. But um, you, you were working on a blog post thing about like the underlying infrastructure and the enablement that's allowed fintech companies uh, to exist today. I think it's a really interesting thread as you were sort of within Capital One, you were watching some of these play out. Would love to maybe tell me tell me about what you think has happened in the last, whatever, 15 years, 12 years, whatever it's been, that's enabled the success of folks like yourself, as well as, you know, other companies in the uh, in the fintech space to really succeed. Well, I mean, first, it just was like so striking to us when we got to Capital One. It just felt like this crazy anomaly where this product that has had a very similar form factor, like the credit card that we use is quite similar to the card maybe parents might use um, 30 years back, super profitable and has an innovation. It's like, how could that be? How, like, how, how, how could that market to exist with no new entrants for a long period of time? And as we started digging into it, a lot of it had to do with first, if you were going to issue a financial product in the US and move uh, cards, um, uh, move credit cards, you needed to be an FDIC insured bank. And the cost of starting one of these banks, buying one of these banks was like incredibly um, hard from a regulatory and time perspective and cost prohibitive was one. Um, and so I think one of the first things that changed actually came out of uh, the financial crisis. A lot came out of the Durban Act in part to, to um, 
uh, help prevent banks, which had been consolidating, um, buying up small banks um, and stop the too big to fail problem. Um, uh, Dick Durbin and the regulation basically propped up small banks and said, um, uh, you know, there's an unregulated and, and regulated uh, interchange. And if you were a small bank, your interchange could be on debit, could be unregulated, and you could make more. And it gave small banks um, like Sutton Bank, Celtic Bank, Web Bank, other banks you might see on the back of these fintech cards, um, uh, the incentive and market opportunity where if they could find people that could bring volume um, and they could partner, um, they could actually go and, and, and capture and have a business. So suddenly you had ban small banks willing um, and interested in looking for folks that could bring business. As that was coming up, um, infrastructure players started making that possible, um, if not doing it directly. So on the merchant side, you had Stripe. On the issuing side, you had folks like Marketa and then later Stripe, um, who built these platforms originally for uh, neobanks debit products, but the infrastructure to issue and manage cards were, were there. Um, you know, next, um, so you, you, you know, this paradigm of banks could work with you. You had infrastructure you could tap into and through an API, you could actually go and issue it. The cost of capital went to almost zero. And so if you wanted to, you know, interchange is great. If you can make, you know, two and a half percent on a transaction, that's awesome. But it means you need to put a hundred dollars out to make 250. Um, if interest rates are low, the cost of borrowing is low. And so even a startup could tap into that. Uh, and last, um, uh, I think you could you could tap into underwriting data um, too. the proliferation of things like Plaid, um, Finicity, things like that meant you could underwrite uh, not someone's credit history, but that this company raised $10 million. It's probably fine to give them half a million dollars um, in credit for 30 days. And so all these things lock together um, in sequence. And so we were just looking at this, um, which is like you've got this space that's very lucrative that has had almost no product innovation, suddenly the pieces fell that if you worked with the right partner, um, you could issue cards out. And, and by the way, you could do this. Um, I think we had our first card transaction within 50 days um, of incorporation. And so you could not only go after a clear product, but lock the pieces in place from a market perspective to go and build ramp. And, and, and that's what allowed us, I think, by when we launched um, February of 2020, uh, to be supporting um, large businesses, some spending millions of dollars per month, um, and, 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 and rock it so quickly. I, I think it just was a market that was waiting and needed this, this um, different way of building. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, everyone bitches and moans about like regulatory capture and government bureaucracy and all that. But like, you know, preventing one, preventing things like the global financial crisis from occurring again, uh, ideally. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> two, I mean, this sort of had, it, it had some unintended benefits as well yeah. uh, around, you know, I don't think Dick Durbin was thinking through the uh, the fintech element of how this is going to be enablement, but it has, I mean, Jamie Dimon bitches about it today about like the interchange rates and what they can do versus what these up and coming banks can do and all that stuff. And so, I don't know, it's kind of, it's kind of worked in some ways. And I, I think it's probably a good thing that some of these banks have been capped in terms of what they can do. I mean, I, I just think in general, um, well, we want to make things that are so good, it's hard for folks to compete. I think competition is good. Yeah. Um, I, I think it forces people who are building things to be better, to yeah. push it. So Ramp, how do you describe what Ramp does today? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I think so too, but here's how we think about it. It's, um, um, so we think about it as, as, as a, a finance automation platform. So we offer the fastest growing corporate card today in the US. Um, we have built-in expense management software, um, um, deep accounting integrations, bill payments, um, and all of these products have been designed with the focus of helping businesses reduce the amount of dollars they're spending on their services and reduce the amount of time uh, that it takes to close their books. And so I, I think like a shorthand is like imagine 
Um, you could get all the capabilities and more of, let's say, an American Express, um, of, let's say, an Expensify, a Concur, a Bill.com, um, all wrapped into one. On top of it, um, you're getting insights regularly that will show you and your employees ways um, uh, to get better prices on things you're already doing, um, but also just a better design and, and little subtle things like on, on a, you know, let's say something like a Concur or an Expensify, um, employees might turn receipts in days to weeks after. I think on one of the platforms, it's three to four weeks after is the average time between purchase to receipt. On Ramp, because we're processing the credit card transaction, businesses can set rules. We can approve or deny based on your actual expense policy. And we collect the average receipts in 30 minutes. Um, uh, and so it just makes companies work a lot more efficiently. Um, we also connect to 100 different sets of, um, you know, whether it's HRIS, productivity software, um, but it's really about making um, the workflow of where companies are spending money um, simpler, more efficient, and automated and trying to take steps away um, so companies can be more efficient. So maybe a little bit more long-winded, but hopefully it gives no, you no, the no, breadth. No, 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 it's helpful. I always give the example of like, hey, I think if you were to start from scratch, you would integrate all of these things together, yeah. right? And I, I always say like all your non-payroll spend should be on ramp. And the example I'll give to people is like how obvious this is, is I'm at a restaurant, I'm taking Eric out to dinner, right? And we have a rule. If I spend my ramp card uh, over $100, I need a note attached to it and I need the receipt as well, right? And so the second that card gets swiped, one either gets approved or denied. But uh, thankfully, after uh, after talking to my finance department, they now approve my stuff. And then I get an immediate text message and that text message goes to, to my phone. I take a picture of the receipt and add dinner with Eric Lyman. And then I press send and it's done. The receipt's in there. And it's it's just the integration of all this stuff together that I really like. And in using it, I don't know, it's made our finance department's team, uh, our life's a lot, uh, a lot better. Um, but yeah, actually using it in the wild, it was counterintuitive to me. I made the joke about like not wanting to invest in a corporate credit card, which is true until I realized that like, it was actually kind of a software company and totally. corporate card was the wedge within this, right? Exactly it. I mean, the card, it's, I mean, you talk, like we were processing transactions in 50 days. Like there's complexities around underwriting, but that's not the hard part. The hard part is really trying to figure out like in these companies, it's not like I need another card. They might have like, you know, three or four, they've been pitched on like a hundred of these things. It's more of like understanding all the areas of just like, pain in that business where people are wasting a lot of time, where people are buying software, um, they're getting charged too much. And can you bring, surface that data up, automate away a lot of the workflow um, to make it much easier and, and, and just kind of um, drive a more efficient and profitable business is, is really how we're measuring yourself and what we're trying to deliver to, uh, to, to our customers. Yeah, no, it's great. So all the parts about Ramp sound good until this last part. Uh, this last part is the part where I'm like, okay, this sounds a little bit bullshit. Um, I use Brex. Um, they have this feature of, you know, the instant uh, travel reimbursement and stuff like that. Um, I, it doesn't really strike me as Ramp having any lasting competitive advantage. Like they haven't really sort of cracked some market insight that no one else has had. They've built a good suite of software, but at least they're just not articulating it well enough. I don't know. Um, I don't think it's they're being fully honest when they talk about the reasons for Ramp success. Um, Ramp is obviously clearly successful. Um, I was actually wrong yesterday. They went from zero to eight billion dollars in three years. But yeah, I, you know, having a better suite of software, great. Replacing American Express and Bill.com and all the other stuff, great. 
um, having great software engineers and designers with them, especially because this is a second time founder, great, but still doesn't quite fully account for why Ramp uh, ramped up so fast, uh, much like uh, basically two times faster than Brexit became a Brex peer overnight. 